Welcome to Free Thoughts. I'm Trevor Burris. And I'm Aaron Powell. Joining us today is Basim Youssef, an Egyptian comedian, writer, producer, surgeon, media critic, and television host, who hosted The Show, Egypt's first satirical news program, from 2011 to 2014. At its peak, his show, The Show, received 30 million viewers. Half of Egypt watched his show. Bossom is often referred to as the John Stewart of Egypt. He is also the author of Revolution for Dummies, Laughing Through the Arab Spring. Welcome to Free Thoughts. Thank you so much for having me. Is it fun to make fun of dictators? Oh, it's the absolute fun. I mean, it's the absolute fun because it's challenging. Because when you make fun of uh, someone who used fear in order to uh, alienate people, scare people, uh, have power over people, when you laugh at them, you're not afraid of them anymore. And that's why the dictators hate us. Why do dictators seem to have so little of a sense of humor? Like it seems like a lot of people are – a lot of world leaders are have a sense of humor, are good at making fun of themselves, engage in the back and forth. But dictators and autocrats seem just to not at all. Well, that brings us to the other uh, pillar of their uh, rulership. It's The first one is fear and the second one is fake respect. They uh, believe that uh, making fun of someone is disrespectful. They need to have this kind of respect because – that's their ego speaking. They are like, these are like all of these dictators have some sort of insecurity and they kind of like overcompensated for too much respect, too much fear. So when you use humor against them, they lose their mind. They don't know how to deal with you. And uh, because it's not just you about making a joke about them, it's about like the, their other subordinates seeing you being a joke and, and, and that kind of like takes away of your halo uh, in front of them. Is that, though, how it's read by those subordinates? I mean, so from the outside, watching these people respond so negatively to humor makes them, in my mind, look weak. Oh, absolutely. Right? Like but if, they, but, if you but, get that but, quickly offended. I know, but they don't see that. They, they look at they look at they, That's why they, in their mind, they're kind of like considered as an insult. And it's an insult that needs to be um, answered. And it's the same thing with even with... Whether those subordinates, by the way, are subordinates of a dictator or subordinates of a god or subordinate of a religion or subordinate of a, of a, kind of a line of thought. So it's the same thing, you know. How novel was your show? I mean, first of all, for our listeners, who this, this show covers a lot of different topics. So at the time when you started this, uh, a lot of things had been happening in Egypt. But like, when you started this, had, was there anything like this going on in Egypt? No, no, not at all. At that time, uh, uh, I mean, it was 2011, but the Egyptian television was stuck in the 80s. I mean, there was uh, absolutely no no innovation. Uh, they just have like very long talk shows that just goes out for hours. Uh, the idea about like being dedicated to a show, be a dedicated writer to a show, to have like a, a real audience, that was not even uh, a thought. And... Um, it, I mean, like, I mean, a lot of people look at the impact, the political impact of the show, but like, I like to look more at the economical and the entertainment impact that the show did. Because after our show, the kind of like people now, kind of like it changed the landscape of the media forever. And now people are more courageous to have big budget shows with like comes once a week, not that it just goes on for hours, it comes every day. Now, how do you go from being a surgeon? You were a heart surgeon, correct? Yes, sir. I, I was a heart surgeon. To a comedian, <laughs> that, that seems like T totally a unplanned. Career derailing of some sort. 
Yeah, well, I mean, at that time, 2011, I was just waiting for my fellowship uh, papers to uh, be finalized. I was accepted in a fellowship in Cleveland. And I was about to, I'm just like, you know, waiting for the final papers for the H-1 visa to get that fellowship. And uh, the revolution happened, and I just, I did something. I did like, some YouTube videos kind of satirizing the state-run media. And uh, I didn't, I didn't think it was going anywhere. And then suddenly, I'm being interviewed by every single network to have me on their show. And suddenly, I am, like, I am signing the contract, TV contract, while the papers from Cleveland arrived. And I had, now I have to make a choice. So I said, all right, I'm, you know, medicine will always be there. So let's just like yeah, try this for a year and and see what happens. And just continued for ten years. <laughs> so in that climate, we had. Mubarak and then Morsi at the, I mean, the beginning of that, were you, were you willing to give Morsi a chance or did you start laying into him immediately? No, I mean, it's not about giving anybody a chance. Anybody who goes in power, you make fun of them. I mean, it's not about like you making fun of him if he's good or bad. It is just, this is the price that you pay for authority. And it is, as a matter, I would consider that a president having a show, making fun of him, that's a compliment for the president, but they don't see it like that. I mean. Some of the people who like conspiracy theories, they said I was making fun of those people because I was paid by them to make them look good. And it was fake. You see, that's kind of, you have conspiracy theories everywhere. And I kind of like, I didn't make anything up. I was just using whatever is there in the media and commenting on them. And a lot of those, these materials were funny. So that made our job easier. So that we, what, that's what we did. At the time that you got started with the show, was this state-run media? Were there independent stations? Well, there has always been independent stations, but it was about the control of the uh, of the authority on them. So, after, right after the Arab Spring, there was kind of a, an interim period of two three years of relative freedom. Uh, so that was like where a lot of like, in, as you say, uh, independent stations started popping up more. What was the process like of? launching this show because if this was the first political satire show and it's in a country even if they're independent stations it's in a country that is not fully democratic doesn't have full protections for for free speech and so on so how do you get a show like that on the air were there worries you know because it's you can't do it yourself you need producers there's a lot of worries like the biggest worries were the logistics worries like having this show not being done before we had to kind of create a core of people that we, we we it's like it's like you are having uh you know the know-how of 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 creating a ferrari car but you don't really have the infrastructure for the ferrari car to run on it so um we just i i even i even hired many of the quote-unquote veteran producers in the beginning and i fired all of them after two months because they they didn't know what to do because that's not the kind of work they would do. So we went in and they hired people that were all fresh graduates and it didn't matter if they had anything to do with media or not. It's about like, if you're going to be passionate, uh, we're going to do it. So that's actually what we did. This sort of goes back to related to earlier question by Aaron, but not only are dictators humorless, but they're, they tend to be really silly. I mean, like in a, in a very interesting way, I, we, we had, 
you know, a lot of things dictatorial about Trump, which we can get into, but there was just a lot of silliness about it. It seems to me maybe the root of that is that they take themselves way too seriously, but there's just so much silliness. I mean, you one at one point, um, I don't know if it was under Morsi or Al Sisi, but the government claimed to have cured AIDS. Correct, correct. Um, was that a serious claim? I mean, these with these kind of silly things that come out, it's like they don't even have anyone who's like looking in the mirror saying, "Guys, this is just too much." There's no self awareness. So this was not about silliness. This is what was propaganda. So the the cure for AIDS thing is was done by an official statement from the higher ranks of the army. So you see, I remember, I remember when I we talked uh, like at the beginning about like fear and respect, fake respect. Uh, the other very important component is propaganda because you can't just like make people afraid forever or respect you forever. So you need to give them something to as kind of a fake hope to give them a false uh, impression that this dictatorship is working. So they announced that like, they cured AIDS, and of course, I, I took them to town. They they believe that people need to believe in that system. And that's why we need to have all of these propaganda, fake news that we are better than others. We are superior than those democratic countries that preach to us day and night about um, human rights. You see, we have got a cure for AIDS, but those Western democratic countries are not our failures. And by the way, it's interesting that you chose the cure of AIDS because that seems to be a staple in dictators. So the uh, president of uh, Gambia, uh, Ali Jema, was a dictator also for like uh, 15, 20 years in Gambia. And he also claimed in 1998 that he found a cure for AIDS. Uh, North Korea, they also many times, more often than not, claimed that they found a cure for AIDS. Even Sudan at one point did that. So it's all of these like tricks that of propaganda that uh, they always... Uh, you know, so you, if you have a look at a dictator like, you know, Hitler, I mean, this is, he was a dictator, but like the system was, was brutal and very effective, right? It's, they, they built the, the, the most lethal war machines and they did a lot of incredible advancement in science. So that at least they have something to brag about. We're dictators and it's working. But in the third world country, it's funny because nothing is working. So they have to make something up. You mentioned that they need the people. To believe in this and and that's always struck me as one of the really interesting things looking at dictatorships or authoritarian types and we saw it we saw it under trump in this country is from like my perspective trump was obviously a fraud he was obviously a man who didn't know much of anything had little or no interest in learning much about anything was obviously lying all the time and was just thoroughly incompetent but he had this whole contingent of Americans who were convinced that he was literally the smartest man who's ever lived, knew everything, and that any screw-ups that happened weren't his fault but were the fault of you know, nefarious forces operating against him. And that seems to be a common thing. How does it – how does that happen? I mean, how how do so many people in countries look at these kind of buffoons in power and imagine that they are, you know, close to godhood effectively? Well, I mean, isn't that this, the exact definition of a cult? It is like that is that's what cult does. They claim ridiculous claims, and you have people believing in them. It doesn't matter if this is a cult like with formed of ten 
people in the woods or 75 million people who believe that. <laughs> it's still a cult. When did the regime first take notice of you? Was there some joke that you thought, oh, that's getting too close? I mean, the show, when it launched, even on YouTube, it garnered like millions and millions of followers and millions of views. So overnight, I I, I, I just turned from this obscure doctor into someone who has the biggest show in Egypt. It was like nobody has seen a development like this. And it was scary because suddenly you have 40 million people watching your episode, every episode. So every 40 million people, that's 40% of the Egyptian population, plus whatever is happening in the Arab world. So we were noticed in the beginning. So uh, the problem is not uh, being noticed or not. The problem is the kind of pressure that you have when you have that kind of uh, viewership. Because people could look, could look at the number, 40 million people, and say like, oh, that's amazing. And I said, that's scary because that means you have 40 million people having an opinion about you. And uh, so, yeah, <laughs> it's, uh, it's kind of, it kind of got out of hand a little bit. Was there a system of increasing pressure applied via different state mechanisms, whether it's licensing or getting visits by policemen at three in the morning or something like that? Uh, oh, uh, oh, we had that all the time. I mean, under the Islamist, I was, there was a warrant for my arrest. I was arrested. I, was, uh, I turned myself in and I was interrogated for six hours and I went out on bail. There was a lot of like incitement, violent incitement against me in the religious uh, channels. Under the military, there was my show was canceled twice, and they a couple of times they have uh, scrambled the uh, satellite signal in order to kind of uh, block the transmission. And they had like legal cases against me, and, and eventually I had to escape. So that's kind of a nutshell what happened to me under two regimes. So, do you think that your show? I mean, you, we talked about how. It was sort of un, unseen in Egyptian society, but did it, I mean, aside from its effect it had on, you said production values and how people consider shows and things like this. Um, do you think that the mindset of Egyptians changed uh, to some extent that in a way that maybe even is still true today, that something is now like something is okay making, you know, satire about political figures that was not okay before. I think there's a lot that changed in the uh, Egyptian mindset, not just because of the Bernamic. The Bernamic was just a very small part of it. I think the whole idea of the revolution itself, although it practically, you might say, it failed, we had a kind of a counter-revolution and then dictatorship ways became worse now. But that whole experience, that whole trauma, if you, a trauma, if you want to call it, uh, made people reconsider every single thing that they thought that they can take for granted. Uh, the, the line of thoughts, the, uh, their convictions, things that is related to political, religious, societal norms has been disrupted forever. And you have even newer generations that didn't even see the revolution have actually now are in a different, uh, in a totally different place than we were before the revolution. So I always say that the uh, revolution is not really an event. It's, uh, it's a process. And uh, maybe it politically did not work, but I think on a on a societal level and on a social level, on a community level, on a mind thought level, uh, a lot has changed. Maybe. Have others, younger comedians, picked up the mantle? Is there is there a political satire scene in Egypt right now? No, and not because of the lack of talent, but la lack of, uh, of of freedom margin. I mean, I believe that. 
uh, after the show, there has been amazing talent that emerged, but they were always kind of limited of what they can do. So I believe that they have they kind of like channeled their talents towards political satire that would have excelled, but it is what is available for them. In America, we had this Trump experience, and you've discussed in different ways. It's as a a sort of a learning, maybe it's a maybe a dictator with training reels or like a, a, a learning dictator or gives us a glimpse into how this works. Um, but then other people say, look, Trump was president for four years. We're not in a dictatorship. Uh, there wasn't a huge amount of change that happened to American laws, at least ones that were passed. I don't think people feel like they're living in a dictatorship. So is it overblown to say that, that Trump had sort of dictatorial attitudes? Yeah, he, he definitely had dictatorial attitudes, but it it was not manifested in real life. So that's the difference between someone who would be maybe some of the uh, of the president of the United States, if they, including Trump, for example, if they were put in a, a dictatorship, in a kind of a third world dictator, a dictatorial country, they will be dictators. But the system doesn't allow them. So. Um, I mean, Trump has absolutely shown some traits. Like, I mean, we can talk day and night about like what he said, whatever. But I think there's one action that he did that kind of is enough for me. Is uh, when he uh, broke a long time tradition of attending and participating in the White House correspondent dinner. I mean, that was uh, a beacon for uh, American mm-hmm. democracy and a sign that a president is human and he can be, even if this was only for show, even if this was not real, but to have kind of this tradition and the fact that he say, I'm not going to go. And, and the undertone is like, I'm not going to allow anybody to make fun of me. So that for me is enough. That is a trait right there. Along those lines though, do you think that America has a healthy political satire climate? Because I'm thinking about, you know, when when Trump was in office, our political satirists were were pretty savage in attacking him, and not just attacking his kind of buffoonery and mannerisms and and that sort of stuff, but also the vileness of a lot of his policies of just being really critical in this sense, of, like in this speaking truth to power sense. But it often feels like that is that's mitigated by tribal and partisan. Identification. So I'm thinking about like when Obama left office, we had Saturday Night Live, which is a engages in quite a lot of political satire. Do a like Obama going away party episode, effectively, where they just sang this very maudlin version of Hallelujah, I believe it was, um, to this outgoing president. And and it does seem like a lot of American political satirists tend to overlook abuses of power when they're coming from people on their own team. Do you you notice that? Like, do you worry that that the satirists who kind of honed their craft under Trump are going to you know we're we're not going to get as much of the prodding at those in power that we really need now that he's no longer in office? Well, I don't think a comedian should be. Uh neutral a comedian is a human and he's biased and he has his own political views because i'm sure that there's like there's like a a wannabe satirical show on fox news who have absolutely ripped democrats and the reason that you don't talk about them that they're not funny right i mean 
I'm sorry, but like I don't see a lot of like conservative Republican right wing comedians that actually worth their my time, and that's why you don't talk about them because the finest people are the liberal ones. So why not? <laughs> Do you have a theory on why that might be the case? Because it seems to be absolutely be the case. Yeah, because like conservative, because the whole thing about comedy that you break barriers, and conservative has so many barriers in their mind, and their and their comedy is lame because. They are. They cannot break the cert. They. You will always find that the comedy on the right wing is very vile and very cheap and very low blow and very on the nose. And I think it comes from the fact that they're conservative minds. And the, and I think honestly that the way that conservative. I'm not. I'm talking about the new conservatives, by the way, not like as a concern the physical conservative idea that the Republican Party should have been like, you know, based on. But it, now it's something else. But I, I really think that like conservative minds really look at the mind and at the world in a very, very con- uh, like screwed way, and that's why their humor are terrible. And also, I'm sure that Obama had his own mistakes, but but like at least he was presidential. I mean, like here's the whole. I think the whole idea is about being presidential. I mean, you cannot really compare. I mean, when Clinton did what he did, I mean, he was ripped apart, you know, the, with the sexual scandal. Although for me, a personal sexual ca- scandal cannot really compare to the kind of damage that one Republican president had done to the country and to the world, whether that was George W. Bush or that was Trump. So, I mean, I'm sorry. I mean, like, I mean, I I don't want to, like, sound very, like, you know, far far left or something, but, like, if you've seen every single Republican president in the last 30 years, every time that he leaves office, there's a a crisis. There's an incredible crisis. A crisis, uh, unemployment, uh, a, a crash of uh, uh, of like some sort of a crash on the stock market or crash of the of the market, and there's like wars everywhere, and the, and there's like huge deficit. Bill Clinton is the only president, like and I don't know how many years, who left actually with the, with a the surplus, and then Obama also kind of like dealt with the deficit and, and kind of like wiped out one billion dollar, one trillion dollars of deficit, and then you find. The Republican president, who's supposed to be, you know, fiscally conservative, they come in and they ruin the economy every time they they do it, and that's by numbers. Even Reagan, you know, the unemployment in his in his eight years. I don't know why is this guy a legend. He ruined the economy terribly, and he increased the deficit. So I don't know. I I really don't know how these people think. I'm sorry. Yeah, it goes back and forth on Republicans, and definitely. They like to talk about fiscal restraint and then spend a lot of money. Um, but on the question of, of comedy, as, as you know, you're always described as the John Stewart of of Egypt, um, which uh, is good marketing, definitely for you. Uh, <laughs> but that the question, you know, the many people on the right said we need a John Stewart. We need a John Stewart. Uh, the, the the right can make fun of people too. Um, so why why can't they have you, why can't they have one? Well, that's part of the. I think that you've pointed out some things. Um, I think that it's difficult. I think that John Stewart did do a better job of actually going to being somewhat bipartisan, going to both sides and making fun of people when they need to be made fun of. If you create a comedy show with the self conscious idea that this will be a conservative John Stewart, you've already created like you're you're putting something before comedy. You had to put comedy first, it seems like to me. Is that what you thought on your show? You can't put conservative before comedy. You have to put comedy, and then it, it becomes that. And and comedy comes much more from the from the right wing. So we make fun fun of them, you know. 
uh, I mean, the blatant lies that Fox News does. I mean, you can speak about CNN as much as you want, but the blatant, horrible lies that comes from only two shows, Hannity and Carlson, you, you, will, you will never find something, or, or before them, Lou Dobbs, before he leaves. The, the hypocrisy, the flip-flopping between, like, of, of, of their situations, it's just, you can't. You can't really compare that with anything. You can speak whatever you want about, like, CNN and MSNBC, but they are, it's like the, it's the, it's the, basically it's the, the, it's the difference between bad and pure evil. Let's take a step back, actually, since you're someone who knows from the ground level, and if it's come up a, a couple times, we're approaching the 10-year, basically, anniversary of the Arab Spring, which, of course, was a, a bunch of different things in different countries. I mean, there's, there's probably not one answer to this question, given the variety of countries, but from your read, uh, being from the region, uh what happened that, that collectively made that happen? And then why did it seem to not work? Well, I mean, uh, this was like a, let's say talk, for example, about uh, Egypt, because each country was different. Uh, I mean, you had Syria, that you had like a, a dictator who effectively aborted the whole thing and kind of killed everybody. And then you had Libya that kind of like went into like so many international power went in and it's kind of fractured. But I think in Egypt, there was like, uh, two big problems, which is the how religion and militarization has kind of effectively infiltrated the society for so many years. So you kind of like for so many years, you only had like these two conservative powers that were kind of in control, religion and the military. And the liberal voices were being effectively um, oppressed and aborted for so many years. And at a certain point, the beginning of the revolution, there was some sort of an alliance between the military and the Muslim Brotherhood. And then, then they kind of like turned against them. It's just like we were not organized. And they were like, and those people had an experience of uh, how to run things and how to kind of turn things again for their own. Uh, so it's kind of, kind of like, it's again, it's not not kind of like it failed as much as it was like aborted. Yeah, uh, we talked about the mindsets uh, of Egyptians. Now, I don't have a good sense of you know where the polling so to speak and mindsets for say egypt is but um do you think i mean there's definitely a fair amount of support for the muslim brotherhood correct there and and then there are some people on the other not side a, not is as it, it used to not as it used to there's more of a kind of a sympathy for what happened to them but there was they're kind of like i think the muslim brotherhood has kind of effectively alienated a lot of a huge part of their population and most of the people are kind of like more now kind of like uh, resentful of Sisi after that he was kind of treated as a god. But you cannot just say that like there's a lot of sympathy for the Muslim Brotherhood. I think they have also alienated a lot of people and they just like now look at the, the victim, but I don't, I don't think that they have any kind of popularity left. Can you talk a bit more about the relationship between religion and these these authoritarian tendencies we see in governments like in Egypt, because there's a there's a narrative that's common among especially conservatives in America that you know the reason that we see so many dictatorships in the Middle East and we so see so few freedoms is because of Islam, is because Islam naturally is drawn to that sort of thing or props that sort of thing up. But there are a lot, obviously a lot of Muslims in in the US and throughout the world who push back very strongly on that and say that these are, you know, that Islam's being co-opted by these authoritarian regimes. So is 
what is the relationship between kind of the hardcore religious base and the authoritarianism? You can remove the word of Islam and you put Christianity and then you can go back 400 years and you see the same exact tendency of authoritarianism when uh, the Catholic Church was ruling the world, right? And you can take the same exact word and you remove it and you put Hinduism and then you can go to India and see what kind of uh, authoritarian tendencies that Moody is doing, oppressing the Muslim minorities. You can remove that and you can quote it Buddhism and you can go to Myanmar and see like how those people also used uh, Buddhist scripture and Buddhist tendency in order to make a, one of the most peaceful religions in the world extremely violent and they killed the Muslims in Myanmar. So it is not really about, it is like how religion is like everything else. It could be used for good, it could be used for bad. And uh, when it is put in the hand of authoritarianism, it will use for bad. I'm not defending Islam. I see, I'm just saying that Islam like, is like on any other religion. You can find ISIS, and at the same time, you can uh, find also uh, Inquisition. Uh, you can, so it is, um, or you can see like how, uh, you know, every single religion, uh, because it's, I think it's more of the, not the nature of Islam, but it's the nature of religion in itself, because the nature of religion is absolute obedience. And somehow when there's a dictator coming in, he kind of like uh, channels that kind of uh, obedience, absolute obedience for his followers. So it is just fact, you know. And there also the whole thing about extremism and jihad, jihad and the uh, extreme groups and the terrorist groups are also used by dictators who are not really Muslim at all, who are just like dictators. Uh, who use that as a kind of a crutch or as a as an excuse for uh, to tell the West that like if we don't have an uh, some sort of an iron fist on the society, uh, the ISIS uh, and the Qaeda will take over. And the ISIS and the Qaeda use the fact that there is a lot of uh, unju- uh, injustice and a lot of uh, tyranny to tell them that you know solution is in embracing uh, religion and following us. It's all a political game. The other aspect of this, which Americans are not very good at thinking through, is our role in many of these situations. Uh, so it's obviously a huge question to say, you know, what has America done wrong in the Middle East? Uh, but maybe just in Egypt, um, uh, we think that a lot of Americans probably think that we have little to no involvement in, in Egyptian politics, except for maybe selling weapons or something. But that America tends to try and choose choose its own friends in those situations, correct? Well, I mean, like, America is a superpower, and at the end of the day, they want some sort of, uh, they want their interest to be fulfilled in those regions. How do you do that? You want to gain, make sure that your interests are protected in each country you have a deal with. It is much easier for uh, for them to deal with a dictator who would break the rules in order to give them what they want instead of them having to go through the legal channels because that will cost them more money so uh, they need a control about a certain region. They, the whole idea of selling weapon is not just is not something to be taken lightly. It is the crux of that kind of control. So it is better for them to have uh, a dictator who he knows that he is vulnerable to them than having a, a truly elected uh, um, government that will work for the best interest of their people over the best interest of that superpower. That's why America and other superpowers do not have any problem at all 
preaching uh, human rights all day and night and then they same time supporting dictators in the Middle East and other plots of the war because basically they protect their interests. It is very easy. Then what could, I mean, America obviously has been involved, continues to be involved in all sorts of ways in the Middle East, uh, most of it pretty destructive. What could or should America do to help that part of the world? I mean, I don't know, because like, I don't think helping that part of the world will actually help America in that, that, that according to their, their politicians, because politics is not never about playing fair. Politicians in America and leaders in America will continue to to play totally unfairly in order to get the biggest chunk of benefits for them. And if they help that part of the world, and suddenly you become you have democratically elected government, those government will say, you know, we don't need an American military base in our on our land. We do not need to give you that kind of an extra benefit or you know preferential treatment. So I mean. But what we're really discussing here is like fairy tale. That's not real life. Real life is really unfair and it's terrible. But if you want to know how they can help that part of the world, maybe they can start by not giving weapons and not supporting dictators. But they would do that. But, like if, but then they will tell you if you don't do that, the whole country will fall into chaos. And might, they might be right because those dictators have designed these countries to fall into chaos when those, these are removed. So I know it's kind of like Quetch 22 and we're kind of like, you know, chasing our tails here. But, you know, <laughs> there, are, there, are no, there is no silver bullet. Well, it's an interesting thing about what, what I think part of your story and what you tried to do to some extent. I mean, you wanted to tell a good joke, but with a purpose. But the, the, the idea, you mentioned democracy and <clears throat> kind of going back to Aaron's question, whether or not uh, a country like Egypt has enough people pro-liberal democracy to create a movement for establishing a liberal democracy. But maybe one of the first things you need before that is you need political satire. You need people to be able to laugh and, and stuff like that. Or, or or maybe there's a movement there and they're just being squelched by the power. Yeah, I mean, there was a movement and the movement was enough to remove a whole regime, but now this movement is crushed. And I think it is, I don't know. And, and I, and I, it's, it's not just like, what about the movement, but what about the powers that work against democracy? The powers that work against democracy are right now are very powerful. They are supported by the West. They are supported by many of the countries that put a lot of money behind them. So th- whether or not it will happen, it, it really depends on, on these factors changing along the, a long time. You know, like uh, if, that, uh, if that system becomes weaker or these powers become stronger. So back to your story, uh, what happened to your, your show? What happened to my show? Uh, I was canceled a couple of times. And then the last time after I was canceled, uh, there's, there started to have some sort of like uh, illegal cases against me, kind of like all of made up, you know, in order to kind of uh, try to frame me in any ways. And then they had a, a kind of a bogus uh, verdict against me to uh, make me pay 100 million pounds. Uh, as a compensation to the network that's that canceled me which doesn't make any sense so the lawyer said like you need to get on the plane and leave which i did i mean the verdict was at 12 noon and i left at five i mean my show was already off the air for four months but they kind of like went as they were getting stronger and having more garnering more support from the um 
uh, international community, they were kind of like going behind everyone who kind of stood against them at a certain point. Have you ever considered relaunching the show on, say, YouTube in some way that would be available? No, because I believe that uh, the show is only valuable when it's broadcasted from Egypt. When you do it from abroad, it's that it, it loses much of its power. You would be looked at someone who's like you know throwing rocks from afar and you know carrying the responsibility of what you're going to say. And uh, yeah, uh, so I don't think I'm going to do it from abroad. So now, how are you continuing to pursue this sort of humor satire? Uh, like like thing to try and affect some parts at least of Egyptian society. Uh, well, no, I'm I'm I, I believe that comedy is a reflection of your truth. My truth now. I am an immigrant. I'm a resident in this country in America. Me as an immigrant, as a citizen and a resident of this country, I have my own problems as someone who lives here in America. So I do stand up comedy, which is. Uh, I, I, I'm on a tour right now, so I do still do politics and and comedy, but it is related to the status that I am in right now. So it's a it's a it's a tool where I tell my story in the same time criticize my present status as a resident of this country, while being a, still able to make you know observational and comparisons between the two places I I, I belong to between Egypt and America. Along those lines, then, so taking taking the experience you had and applying it to the situation now and looking forward, you know, because America went through this sometimes scary, almost always bizarre four years, and we appear to be emerging from that into something new. Where do you see, I guess, fruitful ground for your brand of political satire? Are there things that you think? we should be paying attention to keeping an eye on or just making fun of looking forward? Well, I believe there's a lot of weight that is put on satirical shows and satirists and comedians. I think this whole thing about like finding, looking at satire or comedy as your savior is a very counterproductive uh, thought. Uh, I think it makes us complacent and give us a fake, a fake effect, a fake feeling that we have, uh, done our duty uh, towards democracy and freedom by sitting there laughing passively uh, while watching someone else making fun of the people that we don't like. There is a limit to satire and there is limits to comedy. And the limitation of a satirist or a comedian stands at the edge of his theater or the edge of the TV set. After that, it's people, after all of this satire and all of these doses of comedy, they don't like get up and go vote and change their, uh, their environment. You can have a million satirical show, it doesn't matter. Thank you for listening. If you enjoy Free Thoughts, make sure to rate and review us in Apple Podcasts or in your favorite podcast app. Free Thoughts is produced by Landry Ayers. If you'd like to learn more about libertarianism, visit us on the web at www.libertarianism.org.